This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One of the most closely watched legal cases in the state came to a conclusion last week. Although knowing how this story has unfolded, you can never really be sure it's the end. Renee Lima Marine's journey from Cuban immigrant to convicted felon to cause celeb is the stuff of movies. And he's here with me now, cautiously optimistic about what the future holds for him and for his family. And Renee, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I wonder what you've done with your first week of freedom. Uh, just, you know, spend time with my family. That's that's really all I cared about. You know, that's what I thought about mostly while I was in there is just getting back to them. So that's what I did. I didn't really want to do too much of anything else. You have two kids, a wife. And how has that time been with them? Oh, terrific. Wonderful. You know, playing with them and doing things together. That's it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. They've been on spring break, so they, they've had the time to be with you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they've been home this entire time. So we've just been playing games and wrestling and, you know, doing the things that we were doing before. And that is what you would what dream of when you were in prison. Oh, definitely. It's just getting back to them, you know, being a father again. That's that's what it's about. Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning of your story. You were born in Cuba in the late 70s and came to the U.S. as a toddler with your dad, I understand. And uh, this is part of the Muriel boat lift. Between midnight and noon today, 23 boats filled with over 800 Cubans reached Key West, Florida. U.S. Marines so are now boats on duty. were coming in that the Coast Guard began ordering them to anchor offshore. There simply was no more room at the dock. That last voice is one of the Cuban migrants who said he'd been buried alive for 21 years and was finally allowed to leave to try for a happier life. More than 100,000 Cubans came to the U.S. over the course of several months. Has any part of you ever felt like Cuba is home? Um... Not the actual land, if but I've always felt connected to my heritage, you know, to who I am and to where I come from. You have obviously spent the vast majority of your life on U.S. soil. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. How much was there talk of Cuba uh, or even Spanish in your home growing up? Oh, the entire time. That's all we speak in my home um, growing up. All I spoke was Spanish. Um, I was raised as a Cuban, right? So I lived my life as a Cuban because my parents both were Cuban. Mm. Uh, It was pretty simple for Cubans to get legal residency back then, and you did as a kid. Uh, And then I believe you were 19 when you went into two different video stores with an accomplice to rob them. Uh, You got caught. You were convicted. Why did you rob the video stores? Uh, you know, we were dumb kids. All we cared about at the time was, you know, looking good and wanting to, you know, have nice things and cars and, you know, clothes and shoes and things of that nature. And that was the way to provide the money for it as quickly as possible. So that's that's where our mind frame was at. It was just trying to be those pretty boys who had all the girls and you know, and all the things that go along with it. Did you have uh, any desire or intention to inflict harm on people? Never, never. Not, that was never even an option. So much so that when we entered the stores, we went in with rifles who that weren't even loaded on purpose, right? So that there was never a possibility of anything ever happening. 
And yet, I can imagine for those at the other end of that gun who didn't know that, that might have been one of the worst moments of their lives. Correct. Uh, you said you were, you were stupid kids at the time. Is it just that you didn't give thought to what the psychological effects would be on exactly. someone like that? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. I, we, we never really thought about what kind of effect it would have on other individuals. We only thought about what we were interested in and what we were trying to accomplish, right? We never thought about, you know, how is this going to affect them? which was stupid, which was dumb, which is immature, right? Hmm. Uh, The first turn in your story came in 2008. You'd been sentenced to 98 years in prison, 98 years for armed robbery and some related charges. Uh, But after less than 10 years, you got out. And this wasn't some, you know, good behavior reward. The government had made a mistake in letting you go. Did you know at the time of of that first release that it was a mistake? No. No, not at all. Uh, I was under the impression that I had a 16-year sentence. Um, the reason being is when every time you, you go to trial and you lose, you have the possibility of appealing. Um, so we placed in an appeal, uh, and, I, and they're, you're given an appeals lawyer. Um, so my appeals lawyer came to visit me at my first prison um, and expressed to me that we no longer needed to uh, file for an appeal because I now had 16 years that everything had been ran concurrent. So I was under the impression that I had 16 years. This all boiled down really to a word swap, concurrent versus consecutive, whether you were to serve these penalties one after another, which would lead up to almost 100 years, or consecutively, correct, uh, which would mean a much shorter sentence. And so when you were released, uh, you just thought everything was copacetic. You thought that's how it should have been. Correct. Correct. I, I, I did my 16-year sentence. Uh, I was given parole. Um, and then I just started, you know, following the rules of, of parole. You were on parole for five years and life really started to change for you. You met your wife, adopted her son, had another son together Uh, got a job as a glass fitter, you bought a house. Uh, And it it seems that by that time, you'd become aware of what your crimes had perhaps wrought on its victims, uh, remorseful over that, would you say? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Um, I hate what I did. I hate who I was, you know. But again, I was a child, you know. I'm no longer a child. I'm a man of God. I'm somebody completely different. I see things completely different. I have a completely different perspective, not only on life, um, but just on a lot of things. You started teaching classes at church. Definitely. Once you were released. You you taught boys how to be better citizens. Yeah, yeah. Well, not better citizens, but just better people. Um, I, I taught the word of God, the principles of God, um, to just show us how, you know, we should be living, what God expects from us. How do you think that transformation came about for you? What, what prompted it? Is it just the time you had in prison? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, was, I was lucky enough, uh, fortunate enough to, to meet, you know, specific people. Um, and those people guided me on the path that I needed to be on. These were other prisoners. Correct. Other, other men of God, but also prisoners, yes. Hmm. And to talk to me about those interactions, what, what kind of an effect did they have on you? Oh, a tremendous effect because, you know, they, they, they've, they've molded me into the man I am today. Do you imagine you'll keep in touch with them? Oh, I still keep in touch with them. I have a letter right now f- from one of them. 
Yeah. Yeah. I consider him, um, as we say in, you know, the church world, the, the, the faith world, uh, my spiritual father, if you will. Hmm. So six years after your release, the state discovered its mistake and put you back in prison. I want to know what those first few days back were like. Uh, <laughs> just uh, unbelief. Like I couldn't believe what was going on. Um, I didn't know what was happening, what could be done. Um, I was just, you know, in shock. I, I, I didn't know what was, was what was taking place because, as I said before, I was under the impression that I only had a 16-year sentence. How quickly between when you found out that there had been a mistake, uh, were you back in prison? Like how much time did you have to adjust to that? I'm sorry? The, how, how quickly were you back in prison uh, once they'd realized it was a mistake? In other words, did you have time to kind of mentally prepare for that? Oh, no, not at all. Oh. It was the same day. The same day, like that? Yeah. Just like that. Did you see faces you recognized when you were back in prison? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I mentioned before, that same guy who led me on this path of God, you know, this this faith walk, um, I ended up running back into him again um, at a prison called Bent County. His his name, by the way, is Roger Cullen. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Renee Lima-Marine, whose long legal saga seems to have come to an end. Uh, This is after first being sentenced to 98 years in prison, being released by accident, then sent back to prison. At a certain point, the governor got involved and pardoned him. We'll talk about that uh, aspect of the story in, in just a moment. How do you think you maintained your faith through being uh, put back in prison? How do I maintain it? Um, it's not uh, I, I, like take me to take me to that moment when you found out you're going back. You say this this happens quickly in the blink of an eye. You're back after six years being out. Yeah. D- doesn't that rattle one's faith? N- not not necessarily. Um in the moment, I was more focused on, you know, what is going on here, what needs to be done, things of that nature. My faith was never one of those things that um, ever comes into question. It, it was just one of God has a plan and a purpose for everything. Did, did I know what that plan and purpose was at the moment? I, absolutely not. Um, but I but I knew that there was one and that it would all work out in the end. Your family started fighting the imprisonments. You had a lot of court hearings. Meanwhile, more than 4,000 people followed your case on Facebook. Others demonstrated for you to be let out. And after a few years, a judge ruled that it was cruel and unusual punishment for the gov- government to keep you in prison, you know, since their own mistake had led to your release and to the life you'd been able to build on the outside. Uh, and you got support from state lawmakers. As I said, the governor pardoned you. What was that like to hear a judge and to hear elected officials say, this is draconian, it's cruel and unusual to keep this guy locked up? Um, it was it basically just affirmed what I was already feeling. Right. And so it, it's it felt good for lack of better terms. <laughs> This felt like an injustice to you. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. N- not only what was happening to me at that moment, but also the fact that I was given 98 years to begin with. Right. Because the crime that I committed doesn't hold 98 years. The crime I committed holds anywhere between 10 to 16 years. So I didn't believe I should have ever been given 98 to start. This whole time, one of the men who was working at the video store 
when you and your accomplice Michael Clifton went in to rob it, has said he wishes you were still locked up. Uh, He thinks you didn't deserve the pardon or the second chance. What would you say to him? Uh, Well, I'm I'm sorry that he feels that way. Um, I'm a different person, like I said before. Um, And and it's not just about words, right? I'm not just saying I'm a different person just to be saying it. I've, I've proven that I'm a different person. My actions speak louder than my words. So this isn't just about, you know, hey, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. It's I'm, I'm actually a different person. Back to the twists and turns of this story. So you had all of these forces on the outside fighting for your release, and yet you still didn't get out of custody because immigration and customs enforcement detained you at the center in Aurora. You had been ordered deported way back when you were convicted. For years, that wouldn't have even been possible because of the tense relationship between the U.S. and Cuba. But then... Today, the United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba. In the most significant changes in our policy in more than 50 years, we will end an outdated approach that for decades has failed to advance our interests. And instead, we will begin to normalize relations between our two countries. So within a year, 37,000 Cubans were given final deportation orders, according to the Miami Herald. The governor's pardon of you was supposed to protect you from deportation, but ICE fought that. And so here you were on another legal path until you finally won last week. Immigration authorities said they wouldn't pursue your deportation anymore unless you do something wrong in the future. What was the first thing that went through your head when you heard that you'd be freed finally, apparently with no strings attached? Um, well, unbelief at first, right? Um, and I didn't, it wasn't one of those things where you're just immediately ecstatic because I've already, I've already went through that emotion like three or four times, right? And it, and it was pulled from me. So at first you just, you're just waiting until you actually walk out the door. And then once you walk out the door, that's when it becomes real for you. Yeah. Just this sense of, is this real this time? Exactly. Is there a part of you that still wonders that now? Um, not really, to be honest. Okay. You know, once I'm out, like I said, you know, during one of my other interviews, um, if they tried to get me now, they'd have to catch me because, <laughs> and I'm a pretty fast runner. That sounds like a that sounds like a dare, Renee. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a dare at all. Not a dare at all. It, it occurred to me that you were released just before Easter. I that's a story of of resurrection. That's right. Is that a parallel that occurred to you on Sunday? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you know everything is new for me now. You know, um, I, I they've pretty much given. I, I I pretty much have my life back completely. You know what I mean? But as a new person, obviously, everything is new. Does that? Extend to technology or things in the world that you don't necessarily recognize? Um, Technology is somewhat the same, right? I mean, it's a little bit more advanced. So there are certain things that I I haven't caught on to yet. Um, It's it's only been four years. I I don't think that's that long. (laughs) Although (laughs) five new apps are invented every day. Exactly. Uh, Your co-defendant, the other man who robbed the video stores, is still in prison serving a 98-year sentence. Uh, Michael Clifton says he's happy for you, but he wants his case to be reconsidered as well. Do you think it should be? Definitely. One hundred percent. Why? 
because the same injustice that took place with me, it took place with him. That you think that's an ill-fitting sentence. It's too long for the crime. 100%. That, that's, I mean, logically, anybody who knows anything about the criminal system will tell you the exact same thing. 98 years isn't even given to people who have committed murders or, or rapes and things of that nature. We, we, I sat in the same rooms. Uh, I went to the same lunch halls with these people who've, you know, raped someone and, and, and taken lives, two or three of them, and didn't have that kind of time. Despite all the twists and turns in your story, it, it occurs to me that you're the lucky one because you're out. And barring anything that changes, he will be in prison for those 98 years. Yeah. Um, I don't even really know how to respond to that. Uh, I, I don't consider myself to be lucky um, because, you know, like I said before, God has a plan for everything. Um, so, but I, again, I'm going to do everything that I possibly can to to assist him in trying to, you know, get him out of, of the situation he's in. Are you going to try to become a citizen now? Yes. Yes, most definitely. Um, I've already started the process for that. You have? Yeah. I'll say that your wife is a citizen, your Correct. children are citizens. Correct. I guess to wrap up a kind of bigger picture question, the Aurora Sentinel editorialized last year that if Rene Lima Marine, uh, as a blunder, this, this case was a test that Colorado and America failed that test. When you look at your case, does it represent something bigger than the story of one man and one family, you think? Yes, most definitely. It represents um, what God wants to do in a person's life. I, I believe that I went to prison to begin with so that I can change, so that I can be someone different. If I wouldn't have went to prison, I would have been the same dumb, immature person and doing the you know crimes and things of that nature. You see the entire event as led by God. Correct. Correct. The whole purpose was God trying to bring me unto himself, as, as the, the word says. Is it too much to say you're grateful for what you're, you experienced? Um, to a certain degree, I guess you could say that. Yeah, you can, that would be a good word. Thank you for being with us. No problem at all. Rene Lima Marine was released from immigration custody last week after winning what looks to be the final step in his legal case, which dates back some 20 years. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hundreds of homeowners in Denver got some terrible news recently. They're not technically supposed to be living in the houses they bought, and they may have to sell them at a substantial loss. Brandon Ritterman of Nine News broke this story. Juan Carlos Penalver checks his mailbox every day nervously. He says the city of Denver told him to expect a notice telling him to move out of his house and sell it. This waiting for not knowing what was going to happen to us is devastating. Devastating, he says. And Brandon's in our studio now to talk about what this means for those homeowners and more generally for affordable housing in a city that desperately needs it. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so the city late last week gave these homeowners a six-month reprieve. We'll talk about that in just a bit. Uh, but that gentleman, Mr. Penalver, bought a house he wasn't supposed to qualify for in Green Valley Ranch. 
Help us understand the financial predicament he may now be in. All right. So in his case, he bought this house for full market price from an owner who also didn't know that they owned a home that belonged to this program. I see. This goes back. Okay. Yeah. So the first owner, when you look at the records that are on file with the city, you can see a two-page addendum attached to the warranty deed. This is the thing that says, I hereby convey the house to you, Ryan Warner. Um, And attached to that was a two-page document outlining the restrictions in the program. We don't know exactly how, but somehow that got missed when the next buyer bought the home. Okay. And then it got missed again, even though the terms of the program are supposed to last for 20 years, controlling the price of the home. It's only allowed to appreciate 5% above the original purchase price, which was below market value all the way back in early 2000s. And uh, that's as much as it's allowed to gain value. Obviously, in the last few years, if you've been following Denver's housing market, it's going absolutely nuts right now. And people have made a lot of equity in these homes expecting to be entitled to it. And regardless of uh, their situations, they're looking at missing out on that if the city forces them to sell in compliance with the terms of the program. So Ben Alver basically paid market value for his home, and he has been thinking that his home is appreciating along with the rest of the market. And he's in the worst of the worst situations because, A, um, the there was no information in his closing documents when he bought the house, and B, uh, he would be at a loss under today's cap. He paid more than today's cap, even though it is allowed to appreciate slowly over time. Um, he'd be completely upside down. So some people would just miss out on equity. Okay. Uh, so you said that this was th- these documents laying out the restrictions on on these homes uh, had been a part of some of the earlier deals, and then they just get lost. Or what what happens well, that this is information isn't conveyed from the city's perspective? Uh, one of the city officials put it to me like that's giving someone suspenders when you also have a belt already. The belt is a covenant, and that's the same kind of document that creates an HOA. Uh-huh. It's an agreement between the builder and the city. Um, In the case of Green Valley Ranch, that was Oakwood Homes. Um, So this is sort of the master document, just like you would use one to create an HOA for an entire neighborhood. It created affordability restrictions for entire pockets of Green Valley Ranch. And presumably that information would follow through to every person who bought a home, that home. Right. And somehow in these closings, the title company didn't find it. And that's what's happened. Um, it's supposed to be found. It's supposed to be explained to the buyer. And the city had several safeguards in place designed to make that not happen, to not get it missed. Um, those failed. It was supposed to be in the advertisements for these houses. So when you looked up the listing, so a lot of these people told us we would never even have gone to the showing, much less bought the house if we'd known that it was going to have price controls. It seems that you have a lot of finger pointing, though, Brandon, because I, I think the city has said a, a sort of caveat emptor, buyer beware here. Um, it, it's like everyone's responsible Read and no one's responsible. Yeah. yeah. What do is blame being laid at any particular I mean, here's feet? The, here's the deal. There's there is a lot of blame to go around on this. There are real estate professionals uh, and, and that should have caught this. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, the reason we've been fairly aggressively pursuing the city in our reporting is they set up the program. They told builders, if you're going to build a neighborhood, you have to dedicate 10% of that housing stock as affordable and give it at below market prices. And here are all the protections we envision to make that happen. You see them as the police safely. power in this. They, they're the ones who are running the program. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. They, they were the administrator of the program. And in administrating it, they had one part-time compliance person 
up until about a year ago. And that's who was monitoring the store. A lot of stuff fell through the cracks. And these homes represent a significant chunk of affordable housing uh, in a city that, that is in desperate need of affordable housing. Yeah, we're looking at about twelve to 1,300 homes. Um, this is the last version of the city program. Uh, it was called the Inclusive Housing Ordinance. The city sort of adjusted the way that it does this going forward. So... Uh, the city is struggling really hard to try to defend a older program, even though they have a newer approach now. Uh, what does this mean for the homeowners then? So there's this six-month reprieve. It's what is not, that it's, by It's them? not a six-month reprieve that's been granted. Hmm. They sent a letter by certified mail on Friday. So this hit mailboxes presumably this weekend, maybe today, for these homeowners. And you have to sign up for what they call a compliance resolution program. It's a, it's a new way of fixing this, according to the city. But essentially, when you sign that document, you are agreeing that you're out of compliance. You are also uh, saying you are willing to go along with what the city tells you you need to do to come into compliance. And it lists two options. Okay. Option one is fill out an income verification and get qualified to be in the house. Get it sort of qualified after the fact. Correct. And we know from our reporting that there are several homeowners. Uh, I can't tell you how many of the hundreds that are in this boat, but we know at least of several cases in which the person would not have qualified back when they bought the house. They don't qualify today. And at no point when they were living in the house, would they have qualified? In some of these cases, the city has retroactively qualified you. And in fact, they're trying to offer an olive branch there by saying, if at any point you lived in your home and met the qualifications, the lower income qualifications, we will retroactively qualify you, even mm. if it wasn't the moment you bought it, even if it was year two and you lost a job and, or whatever. Um, but some of them don't. And that brings you then to option two. I gather to sell, sell at the a home at the capped price to a qualified buyer. And that would mean potentially losing Tens of thousands of dollars. Tens of thousands homes. in equity for sure in, in all of these cases, given what the market's done. And in some cases, like Juan Carlos, who we heard from, uh, it would be an actual loss over what they paid. To sell the home they bought, and, to move from that home. And I should be clear, the city isn't wrong when it points out that they could go after title companies for the monetary difference. It's trickier when you're talking about market price because apparently courts like to have an offer in hand, which they can't go get. Um, but monetarily, there is a, a route to go after the title company to stay in the home, to have the roof over your head, which Juan Carlos desperately wants to do. They had their first child there and they want to raise him there. What you, you need the city to let to let you out. What questions do you have moving forward? Just briefly. Uh, today, one of my most burning questions has to do with the way the city presented this information about its compliance program because we asked and heard from two city officials at the press conference they held on Friday, and they said, no strings attached. If you sign the document, it's just a six-month moratorium. Um, I happen to have... But it seems to have more strings than that. The letter says, understand by voluntarily returning to compliance, you are admitting noncompliance and are indicating your willingness to comply with any and all corrective steps required by OED Economic Development. Those are the people running the program. You're hearing two messages, in other words. You'd like to square those up. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. Brandon Riddiman, political reporter at Nine News in Denver. He broke this story that a significant chunk of the city's affordable housing stock was improperly sold to unqualified buyers. We'll post a link to his reporting later today at CPR.org. 
Pretty soon, photographer David Mayhew will be living out of a suitcase. He's a storm chaser who crisscrosses the plains to take pictures of tornadoes, lightning strikes, and storm clouds. He collects some of his most breathtaking images in a new book, Storm Chaser, a visual tour of severe weather. And Mayhew joins us from his home base in Fort Collins. David, welcome to the program. Hello, how are you doing? Doing well. You photographed the largest tornado ever recorded, 2.6 miles wide near El Reno, Oklahoma. This was in 2013. Uh, what do you remember about that day? Uh, it was quite an ominous day. Uh, there were a lot of storm chases around um, in that area, which is always a big problem when you get a, a lot of chases on the same roads. Um, but uh, when that storm went up, uh, I was between two locations, but I decided to go to the Arena one um, and just, just followed it. When it first dropped, there was a lot of um, small tornadoes whispering up. It's what's called a multi-vortex tornado. Huh. But it wasn't very clear. It wasn't very crisp uh, to see. And, of course, when the whole tornado uh, became the 2.6 miles wide, it was very tough to see visually. Uh, a lot of rain in and around, which makes it even more dangerous. So that was a... A day to remember there. Indeed, during that El Reno tornado, three storm chasers were killed. Their truck was found mangled uh, after the storm made an unexpected turn. Uh, How do you keep yourself safe or as safe as possible? Well, I have a gauge called the knee-knocking gauge. When my knee starts to knock, it's time to make out of there. Uh, This storm, as I say, the visibility was pretty poor. Um, And the other problem was we're stuck between um, the expressway to the north and the Canadian River to the south. There's very few ways to get away from that tornado. So I get my distance. And um, once it got big and ominous, I just decided it was time to, to get out of the area. Keeping your distance. I also imagine that that helps with the photography because sometimes these things are so big, it's best to be a little far back to put them into some context. Would you say that's true? That's true. I mean, the the best photos that I take, I I like to do wide angle shots where you really see the structure of the tornado. So it's kind of cool just to have a really small tornado underneath just to give it a little context as um, how it is in scale to the entirety of the storm. Um, But another thing I do for safety is I always have uh, my laptop set up in my vehicle. So I always have live data as well. So I see on my laptop for GPS location exactly where I am, where the storm is, where it's moving relative to me. And that also helps me show which roads I can use to get out of there. I always make sure I have a good escape plan. Is lightning a big concern? You have a lot of really magnificent photos in this book, and we'll post some later today to CPR.org, of lightning. I imagine you have to get out of the truck to take those photographs, or or maybe you don't. Maybe those are from the window. Uh, Yes and no. Um, I mostly do set up the tripod outside. Um, Lightning, when you get an isolated storm, tends to come from the heaviest rain rain shafts, the the downdraft there. Um, So Generally, they tend to stick there, but you can get what is called a bolt from the blue. In fact, one of the, the photos on the cover of my book is the photo called Bolt from the Blue. This is lightning that can jump from the top of the anvil of the storm, and it jumps away from the storm. And it's been recorded as jumping up to two and a half miles away from the storm. Oh, my. Uh, and Yeah, so you've got to be, you know, use your common sense as to whether you're sticking around or, or not. One thing that I do do is I have a... Um, I've got a car that's got, um, it's a hatchback, so I can open the back of that and use that to 
protect my camera from the wind and the rain and I can sit within the car because the car is like a Faraday cage. If lightning strikes the car, I'm protected inside. So if, it's, if I'm a little too close, I'll sit in there and set my tripod and camera up outside. As we said, you have this new book called Storm Chaser, and you write in it that as a kid, you would watch lightning storms no matter the time of night. Uh, this, was in the U- yes. this was in the UK. Um, what, what did you find so captivating as a kid about storms? Um, I just, well, what I find about still today about storms is you never know exactly when you, what you're going to get with a storm. Um, they're, they're so intense and at times unpredictable. Uh, so photography purposes is ideal because I can, I, I capture a unique moment in time because that moment's never going to repeat. The formations, the structure always change constantly. Um, and then that also means nobody can duplicate exactly what I have uh, unless they were there at that exact moment. So it makes my images a little more unique as well. You came to the U.S. to see the storms of Tornado Alley, which includes Colorado. I gather that the storms yeah. here are very different than what you witnessed as a child. Uh, yeah. Um, here you get more of the, the dramatic, isolated storms. Of course, you got the the setup with the moisture coming up from the Gulf of Mexico here, clashing um, across the continental U- U.S. with a, the cold air pulling down from, from the north, from Canada, which you don't get in the U.K. so much. You get a lot of humidity in the U.K., and the visibility and the structure of the storms in the U.K. aren't quite as engaging as what you get over here. This is the best place to do it, for sure. But the U.K. does have the highest percentage of tornadic activity per area of land for any country in the world. Oh, I had but no idea. Clouds. Yeah, more final clouds and water spouts. So nothing terribly exciting. Uh, nothing as strong and intense as the tornadoes out here. But Weld County is the county with the most tornadoes for any county in the U.S. So Weld County. In Fort Collins. Yeah, mm-hmm. indeed. Uh, well, severe storms, I think, are just starting in Texas. You say May is a big month for Kansas and Oklahoma, and then Colorado season gets revved up about June 1st. Give us a picture of, yeah. of the busy storm months. I mean, how do you know where to go? Where do you sleep at night? What is life like in those months? Mm-hmm. Well, during those months, of course, is the, the moisture from the Gulf Mexico moves further north, and we get more uh, warmer days further north. Um those storms start to initiate, in, as you say, in May and June, further up here. So depending on the day, I, I, I like to, around June, try and do as much chasing in, in Colorado as possible because it's closer to home. But it all depends on the jet stream and the flow of the air as to how much moisture is being drawn up. For example, Denver is what's known as the Denver Convergence Zone. We're actually in a, in a bowl here between the Palmer Divide to the south, the Cheyenne Ridge to the north, and, of course, those small little hills to our west that we're quite familiar with. <laughs> so that moisture can pool in here and really build up, and then we get some great chase days. And I think being at higher elevation here, because we need lower dew points for these storms to form, um, it provides great opportunities. And we seem to get a lot better structure and formations up here than uh, some of the other areas across the plains. You call these chase days. Uh, does that mean yeah. sometimes being in the in the field overnight? Yes. Um, basically, at the end of the day, I, it depends on the storm. If it if there's great lightning and structure to the storm, I'll chase that until the early hours of the, of the next day. Um, but otherwise, you have to keep in mind what's going to happen the next day and make sure you're in a good position to set yourself up for the following days. So I'll just book a hotel. I'll try and make sure I book a hotel by about 6 o'clock and um, find a spot there that's convenient. So 
as a, a lot as of a, being blown by the wind wherever the wind blows me is where <laughs> I end up basically. In 2016, a meteorologist named Eric Holthaus wrote a piece in Slate called Storm Chaser Stay Home. Uh, and the gist is that rural roads are getting crowded during tornado season because of storm chasers. The traffic jams put uh, erratic storm movements, uh, you know, those, those two combined traffic jams and uh, erratic storm movements could make for a deadly combo. There's actually a name for when a storm attracts a crowd, chaser convergence. Um, plus, yeah, exactly, if, yeah. if those people require any emergency services, it can strain a community that's hit, been hit by a twister. Is storm chasing getting yeah. out of hand? Uh, the, the numbers have been getting fairly high. Um, I mean, the, the worst case scenario is actually on that Del Reno day. The problem being you're, you're near built-up areas. Um, and one of the meteorologists there told a lot of local people to get in their car and drive away from the storm. But that was actually the cause of all the traffic jams that day, was all the local people trying to get away from the storm, which was really bad advice from the, the meteorologist that day. Hmm. That's also another reason for, for me to, to be up here in Colorado, and I like to chase the northern plains, the Dakotas, um, and Nebraska. There's fewer storm chasers that head up that area, um, so the congestion is less of an issue. In those um, places. Well, David, it thanks. Can, it can happen. Thanks for being with us. That storm photographer, David Mayhew, he joined us from Fort Collins, and his new book is called Storm Chaser, A Visual Tour of Severe Weather. As I said, we'll post photos to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. Denver artist Heidi Annalise paints on tiny canvases, ones you can hold in the palm of your hand. I actually didn't realize right away when I started painting miniatures exactly where that came from. And then it dawned on me one day, this is what I did when I was a kid. I was obsessed with my little Lego village. And uh, one of the Lego characters in this village was an artist. So at the time, I was creating tiny little watercolor paintings based on like some random calendars around the house that I would stick up inside the Lego house. Today, she paints miniature landscapes in mint tins. Her raw paint sits where the mints would normally be. That's her palette. And then there's canvas on the inside of the lid, which she just flips up when she's ready to paint. This was all born out of practicality. I kept hearing this message from landscape artists over and over again that if you want to really learn about nature, you have to go outside and sit there and like paint things in the moment. And I was like, I want to give this a shot, but I don't know if I want to go out and buy like all this expensive outdoor painting equipment and it's really heavy and I'm kind of self-conscious. Maybe I don't want to like lug it up a mountain and then be like super visible somewhere. She'd seen an artist on Instagram using mint tins to paint sunsets. And that was Annalise's aha moment. These days, she still packs light when she goes into the mountains, just paintbrushes paper towels, and mint tins. It's great when one of those like really like hardcore mint addicts gets in touch and says, like, I've got a box full of these things. Um, because otherwise, I'm basically subsidizing the habit of eBay users who sell them empty. That is landscape artist Heidi Annalise of Denver. You can see her tiny oil paintings at CPR.org. 
What you are about to hear comes from two musicians who are closely connected, their father and son. Richard Stoltzman is one of the best-known clarinetists in the world. His son, Peter John Stoltzman, is a jazz pianist who leads the piano department at CU Denver. And the younger Stoltzman arranged this version of My Funny Valentine. Father and son are set to perform together with the Colorado Wind Ensemble this weekend in Denver. They spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel last year about making music together. Richard and Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you. You've played many recitals together over the years. Uh, Peter, how is the connection you feel on stage to your dad different from one you'd feel with another musician you've played with for years? Oh, man. You know, it's my father. <laughs> so it's kind of like, how is a friendship different with, you know, somebody versus a friendship with your father? I think, you know, uh, it's it's special to have this kind of relationship with my father. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't get that. And if they do, they, they don't get uh, a public expression of it where you're actually doing something together um, that's... that's uh, yeah, you know, an offering to an audience. So, yeah, I, I I cherish this. Richard, do you think that the audience senses that connection between you and your son? I had a, a gentleman come back a couple of years ago uh, in the line of people saying hello, and he was just uh, crying. Really? Mm-hmm. Because of that connection? Yes. Yeah. You also had a musical upbringing. Uh, your dad played jazz. Uh, as uh, How much did your access to music growing up lead you to want to give Peter a similar experience? Well, my access, first of all, was like yours through the voice, mm-hmm. singing. Not that I was a singer, but that my mother and father liked to sing in the church choir. Yeah. And so uh, that's how I got started hearing the voice in the house. And um, it, it surrounded me with something palpable in a peaceful way, uh, an expression not in so much words, but in just the way the voice could uh, issue a comfort to another person. Um, and I I wanted that for for everybody, but especially for Peter and Maggie. And, and Peter um, was very sensitive about the voice. I remember taking him to a kind of a fancy uh, uh, Upper East Side apartment and and we were supposed to have lunch and they were getting ready to serve and he was still playing with some toys and I I said, Hey, Peter. So he came to, you know. (laughs) He came pretty quickly. (laughs) So we sat down, we sat down at the table to have lunch and and he said, I just want to say... One thing, it, don't ever use that hey word again. And I thought, <laughs> this was, did right, Peter? Is this true or not? This is true. And I, I struck me there 
that the power, <laughs> the power and emotion mm. that comes with the voice. Mm. And that's what I tried to do, you know, with the clarinet in terms of playing the clarinet. Yeah. Well, I want to hear a little bit, a bit of this, this work that you've done together. Uh, this is a track by Peter called Lullaby from your album Father and Son. Let's listen. story and then hearing this piece of music the two of you playing together um how how important was this to you the the fact that you did this together what do you remember about working on lullaby either one of you yeah well um, maybe i should speak because um my dad used to sing the brahms lullaby for me when i was going to sleep um <clears throat> and so this was kind of a, an homage to that. It Lullaby and good night. May the bright stars watch over you. <laughs> and so I, I, I put that melody in retrograde <laughs> and uh, and harmonized it, and and it came out beautifully. I mean, the the melody, you know, it's, it works beautifully. It really does. Peter, your dad is known for playing classical and jazz, and few musicians can do that, you know, do both well. Uh, mm-hmm. You're less interested in classical. How early on did you gravitate toward jazz? Um, pretty early. Uh, so I started with Suzuki as a young kid, six years oldish, and um, and is that reading by sight? Does that sight reading or uh, kind of? But I but I basically learned it all by ear. I see. <laughs> and uh, and my teacher before we left Oakland, California, to move to Boston, told my parents, uh, you know, this kid's going to have to improvise. And oh. sure enough, uh, it, less than a year of classical lessons in. Uh, I, I wanted to quit the instrument. And so my parents found me a great jazz teacher. And uh, so I started jazz, I guess, you know, I, I couldn't have been more than 10. You had a career, Richard, that led you to many different parts of the world for concert dates. Was the challenge to maintain a relationship with your kids while you were in an on-demand type of thing as a musician always wanted to be somewhere? <sighs> That's a terrible question. <laughs> I, I, I'll, never, I'll never be able to get past the guilt I feel having missed pretty much everything that is significant to both my kids growing up and um, what just is a constant marvel to me touring with Peter John is how great a father he was without really, now Peter just shut up without the example of a good father and and um, Part of it was I was full of myself and doing my own touring and uh, things and you know, and oh, I thought well it's too late to call. Um, you know, I'm not going to call. It's expensive, long distance. You know. But but he was there for some of the things that you were doing. I, I want to uh, play a little clip from your appearance on Sesame Street from the 1980s. This is uh, Richard Stoltzman improvising on the show's theme on his clarinet.
That's my friend Richard Stoltzman playing. He's visiting us here today. Do you know what that instrument he's playing is called? It's called a clarinet. Shh, let's listen. That, by the way, is Telemonster introducing uh, Richard. Uh, Peter, you got to take along during that <laughs> visit to Sesame Street. What do you remember about that? Um, I remember seeing Big Bird uh, without the without the top on <laughs> and just having the ultimate dissolution moment of oh. like, no, it's a man inside a, inside a costume. So, yeah, but uh, that was fun. I want to go down this. This is music by George Gershwin during a session in the CPR Performance Studio with two generations of Stoltzmans, Richard on clarinet and Peter on piano. Clarinetist Richard Stoltzman and his son, pianist Peter John Stoltzman, speaking with my colleague Nathan Heffel last year. They performed together this coming Saturday in Denver with the Colorado Wind Ensemble. This is CPR News.